Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the astonishing civil trial in Manhattan between a Russian oligarch and Sotheby's. We visit Singapore Art Week and a photograph by Zanelli Maholi. The art newspaper's acting art market editor, Tim Schneider, witnessed the Russian oligarch Dmitry Rybolovlev's testimony in the trial in New York in which he accuses Sotheby's of aiding the Swiss art dealer Yves Bouvier in an alleged fraud relating to major works of art, including the controversial Leonardo painting Salvatore Mundi. Tim joins us to tell us about this extraordinary case. The second and 30% smaller edition of Art SG, the art fair in Singapore, is now open and takes place amid Singapore Art Week. Lisa Movius, our reporter in Asia, tells us about the mood in Singapore and reflects on the events in last week's election in Taiwan. And our first work of the week of 2024 is the South African artist Zanelli Maholi's photograph Zava 3, Paris, of 2013. The image is one of more than 100 works in Zanelli Maholi I Me, an exhibition that's just opened at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Shana Lopez, one of the curators of the exhibition, joins me to discuss it. Don't forget that you can still buy the art newspapers magazine The Year Ahead 2024, an authoritative guide to the world's must-see art exhibitions and museum openings, many of which were discussed on last week's podcast. Get a print and digital subscription to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com before the 15th of February to receive your copy of The Year Ahead with your next printed issue, or you can buy the magazine on its own on the website for just £9.99 or $13.69. Do also subscribe to this podcast and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, which returns on the 31st of January, wherever you're listening. Please also leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the dispute between the Russian billionaire Dmitry Rybolovlev and the Swiss art dealer Yves Bouvier relating to the sale of more than $2 billion of art has been rumbling on for several years. It's now reached a stage that some see as its endgame, a civil trial in Manhattan. But Bouvier is not among the list of defendants in Rybolovlev's lawsuit. Instead, it's the auction house Sotheby's that's in the dock, accused by the oligarch of aiding and abetting the Swiss dealer in committing fraud. This is despite Bouvier never having been convicted of fraud and continuing to deny the accusation virulently. Tim Schneider, our acting art market editor, has followed this story closely over the years and was in court last week as Rybolovlev took the stand. I spoke to him about what he heard and what it tells us about this remarkable story. Tim, let's begin by establishing the cast of characters. Who are our protagonists? The protagonists in the current trial are, on the one side, Dmitry Rybolovlev, who is a... Russian billionaire and art collector. We can go more into his background in a moment, I'm sure. And then on the other side, Sotheby's, which is the international auction house, obviously. But there are a whole host of other characters who play into this in one way or another, the most important of which is Yves Bouvier, who I'm sure our listeners have heard of at some point or another. We can go more into Bouvier's bio further on, but the absolute top line here is that he is a Swiss businessman through whom Rybal of Love acquired about 40 artworks over the course of about 11 years, and Rybal of Love and Bouvier up until the very end of last year had been locked for nearly a decade in litigation and criminal cases in a variety of different jurisdictions all over the central tension in this case, which is, did Bouvier defraud Rybolovlev 
by selling him works for substantial markups beyond what Bouvier himself was acquiring them for. Okay, and the facts of the case, the basic facts of the transactions are out there, right? So we know how much Bouvier bought works for and how much he sold them for Rybolovlev. That's not a question of dispute, is it, or is it? Generally speaking, it's not, no. By this point, there's been enough discovery and research and whatever else that I think that everyone pretty much agrees on what the numbers are. The question is... Did the process of getting to those numbers qualify as some kind of wrongdoing? Right. And it does actually involve some really major artworks, artworks that everybody knows, right? Certainly in terms of seeing them on the art newspaper's website and in our paper and so on. They're, they're, they're major works of art. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, the relationship between Rybolovlev and Bouvier was essentially premised on the idea of only chasing masterpieces. And ultimately, Rybolovlev spent more than $2 billion on artworks through Bouvier. And as you're saying, some of the works in this case are really some of the best known in the world, most notably the Salvatore Mundi, who I'm sure... Like, how many podcast episodes have you done about that by this point, Ben? <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, it's probably been Double digits, triple digits? Like. Yeah, double digits. It's been mentioned in double digits of podcasts, definitely. So, I don't want to get too into the kind of background data, but it's probably quite important to establish that Roy Bolovlev is a massive billionaire. He's got a lot of money, and obviously that is how he's able to afford buying these masterpieces that you just discussed. Right, and he has a pretty interesting past but at this point one of the central again tensions or disagreements in this case is here on the one side you have this guy who has built up this incredible amount of wealth through a series of very complex and high stakes deals and at the same time he is now in court essentially arguing that because of the arcane mechanics and opacity of the art market, he was taken advantage of by this Swiss businessman and later, and crucially in this particular trial, by Sotheby's as kind of a secondary factor. And like we should mention here, one of the things that's really kind of bizarre about this entire case is that Bouvier is not a defendant. The case is only between Rabolovlev and Sotheby's. But what Bouvier did along the way is basically the entire crux of the case. It's this weird thing that you keep having to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that Bouvier is everywhere and yet he has nothing to lose in any of this, no matter how it goes. Okay, so let's come back to Sotheby's in a second, but let's just go into some of these transactions. And I think it's probably quite useful just to focus on the transactions which are actually the subject of the trial. So there are four works of art. Can you give us a flavour of the kind of transactions that were happening between Bouvier and Roy Bolovlev? So the four artworks that are at the centre of this case are, first and foremost, as we already mentioned, the Salvatore Mundi, Reattributed somewhat controversially to Leonardo in recent years. That was a work that Rybolovlev acquired from Bouvier for $127.5 million, and which it later came out Bouvier had acquired for $83 million. 
So that was a profit for Bouvier, less some commissions and whatever else, of about $44.5 million, which is a pretty good day at the office, I would say. Indeed. And, and it really is like, it is a sort of day at the office. It's a relatively short time. It's not like he bought it 20 years ago and then sold it. It's a, a very short time between Bouvier buying it and then, and then selling it on. Right. These are not cases of Bouvier having some incredible amount of foresight and acquiring these works early and holding on to them for years and years and years. And then finally, he finds the right buyer for it. And he makes an incredible profit on this stuff. It's really pretty short timeline stuff. Okay. And so even though Salvatore Mundi is the headline work of the trial, what are the others? Another one is a Gustav Klimt work called Water Serpents 2. I'm only going to do the translation here. I don't speak German to the eternal disappointment of anyone else who sees my last name. But Water Serpents 2, Bouvier acquired for $112 million and sold to Rybolovlev for $183 million. So he actually made more money on that than he did on Salvatore Mundi. Beyond that, you have a Modigliani sculpture called Tet, just head, which Bouvier sold to Rybolovlev for 62.5 million euros. The price is only listed as being much lower in the original complaint against Sotheby's that was filed by Rabalovlev's lawyers. That's basically the same case with the last of these works, which is René Magritte's Domaine d'Arnheim, which, again, Bouvier sold to Rabalovlev for $43.5 million. Right. Um, let's turn to Sotheby's then. Why are they implicated? What does Rabalovlev argue that they have done? Essentially... Rybolovlev's argument is that he would not have agreed to pay the prices that Bouvier was offering him these works at if Sotheby's hadn't assisted in providing appraisals and other documents and information that essentially validated the prices. So, Again, that takes us to this kind of strange territory where this incredibly successful businessman is essentially saying, well, I didn't have the capacity to operate within this world with the kind of knowledge that I needed to make good deals. And when he was on the stand last week, and I I was in the courtroom for that, and I'll caveat this by saying that he was giving his testimony in Russian, so it's all through a translator. But when he was asked why he brought this lawsuit against Sotheby's, what he said through the translator was, it's not only a matter of money, it's important for the art market to be more transparent, because as I've already mentioned, when the largest company in this industry, meaning Sotheby's, is involved in actions of this sort, clients don't stand a chance. What do you make of that? Because it seems extraordinary that somebody so entrenched in the world of business can be so stunned by the behaviour within a certain industry. I mean, I can't believe that there aren't smoke and mirrors going on in all industries, all business across the world. Right. And it has a particular spin on the entire thing because of the fact that Rabolovlev is a guy who made his fortune in post-Soviet Russia. Like he is, the phrase that you will hear 
most often when someone asks, well, who is Dmitry Rybolov? They will say he is a Russian oligarch. And Russian oligarchs, as listeners know, have a particular kind of reputation for, to say it the most diplomatically, being able to do business with sharp elbows when it's needed, I would say, and to look out for all kinds of things. Absolutely. So, yeah, he's become this crusader for art market transparency. I mean, the fact is that when you you hear the figures that you listed earlier on, it is gobsmacking, isn't it, that that somebody is able to get away with it? But is the contention of the lawyers for Sotheby's basically that Rybolovlev was naive here or Rybolovlev and the people that he was working with on these transactions? I think the way that I would phrase it is that, and again, this is just my opinion that this is not Sotheby's specifically using this wording, but I have defined it as Sotheby's essentially making the argument that Rybolovlev is a victim of his own making. There was a really interesting movement, I would call it, in Rybolovlev's cross-examination, where one of Sotheby's attorneys, a guy named Marcus Asner, literally went back through Rybolovlev's entire career, through all these major checkpoints, where again, he's leveling up in these really important ways, whether it's founding his first investment company in Moscow, or selling a controlling stake in this potash mining company that he got control of uh, for a sum that is estimated in some circles to be about $5 billion to acquiring AS Monaco, the football club that he owns now. Like all of these transactions, the attorney just sort of methodically went through all of them and said, now when you did this, did you use attorneys? Did you use accountants? And pretty much every time with a few quibbles, the answer was, yes, I I used attorneys, I used accountants. And to which the lawyer followed up with, well, did you try to find attorneys who were hardworking and competent and loyal or words to that effect? And of course, the answer was, was yes. And it eventually led up to this point where this pattern of extreme rigor that Rybolovlev had made his fortune on, all of a sudden he seems to have swerved away from when it came to spending, again, more than $2 billion on artwork through Yves Bouvier. And we can get into the mechanics of why that might have been or where the the pitfalls were or whatever else, but it is kind of an amazing thing that there is this really kind of well-documented pattern of someone knowing I w- what I would think a business school would tell you was the right way to do these things, and yet here we are, and he stepped away from it for some reason. Absolutely. And the question is, was that his fault, or was that something that he's been victimized by because of this weird system that we know as the art market? Right. It seems to me that absolutely key to the trial is this idea of what Bouvier's role was. So Rybolovlev thinks that he was an agent for him and Bouvier says, well, no, I'm just an art dealer and I'm free to set my prices at whatever I say they are. Do you think that that's ultimately the kind of key question that the jury must answer when they come to their deliberations? It is and it isn't because, again, Bouvier isn't the one who's on trial. Right, yeah. We can get into that, but yes, on one level, you're absolutely correct. The only way that a jury is going to rule in Rybolovlev's favor is if they believe that the way that Bouvier went about his business was wrong. 
in some kind of a way. So that's the first checkpoint. The jury first has to make that conclusion. And then, in addition to that, they also have to say, and we believe that Sotheby's was material to things going down the way that they did. Right. And Sotheby's says it has no knowledge of this inflating of prices and so on, right? Right. So within this case, the main secondary character, at least on Sotheby's side, is a guy named Samuel Vallette, who is a specialist in impressionist and modern artwork and was a major executive when it came to private sales at Sotheby's. And most importantly, he was Bouvier's main point of contact within Sotheby's in his dealings with Rybolovlev over these four artworks. And what a lot of this argument ends up being about is the idea that whenever Bouvier, at least as these four artworks are concerned, got to a point where he needed to find some kind of greater justification for the prices that he was offering works to Rybolovlev at, numerous times he went to Samuel Vallette at Sotheby's, who assisted in one way or another in getting an appraisal that pretty much came in right at or around the prices that Bouvier was asking him to pay. And so Rybolovlev's argument now is there's no way that I would have agreed to this stuff if I hadn't had this institution of great repute in Sotheby's justifying this stuff. And Sotheby's, on the other hand, is saying, A, what Samuel Vallette did isn't necessarily our responsibility as a corporation. But also, in addition to that, we have no idea what Bouvier was doing behind the scenes. Like, this is ultimately a matter between him and Rybolovlev. And every indication that we had was that we were just doing our jobs. And if something underhanded was being done with the information that we were providing in good faith, that's not our fault. So lastly then, what do you think is going to happen? And also, do you think it has any wider implications for the art market? Or is this just an extreme one-off, just an extreme outlandish example of the kind of trials or, or legal cases that one might get in the art world? I think it has wider implications, assuming it goes to a verdict, which is the second part of the question. But again, ultimately, the crux of this entire dispute is do the people who are involved in art market transactions, do they need to be more transparent? Do people on both sides need to be able to fully understand everyone who is operating in between the two ends of the deal and how it is that they're involved, what their role is, all these kinds of things? Because the reality is that that's just not the way that the art market works. In a lot of cases, there is, as we know, an extreme amount of secrecy. Some might call it discretion. But it's not a straightforward business. And Rybolovlev is making the argument that it needs to be. And if it's not, then things like this are going to keep happening and it's going to be a problem for everyone. So in that sense, yes, it does have major implications. As to whether or not it is going to actually go to a verdict... I don't know. This whole case, honestly, is one of the strangest things I have ever encountered in my entire time in the art world. And I don't think I'm alone in saying that. So my instinct at first was to assume that it would settle because cases like this pretty much always do. There's too much at stake for the people 
on both sides of the litigation. And the longer the case goes on, the more annoying journalists like me get to find out about the inner workings of a thing that is better for everyone on the inside if it stays secret. So the incentives are usually aligned so that everybody will settle out of court and that's it. However, an important factor in all this, which I think I mentioned in passing, is that Bouvier and Rybolovlev settled all of their disputes in all their jurisdictions at the end of last year. Which means, effectively, I think, that this is really Rybolovlev's last chance to try to get back some significant amount of money that he believes he is owed for these transactions that he conducted through Bouvier. Given that, I don't think that it's out of the question that he could be, to use a gambling term, pot committed to the idea of just taking this all the way through. And if he loses, he loses, but at least there is a chance, as long as the case goes on, that they could manage to get something out of this. So we'll see. The trial, theoretically, at the beginning, could have ended within two weeks. They also said it could go as long as seven weeks. So this might be going on for, I don't know, another month, potentially. But who knows at this point? Everything is up in the air. Well, Tim, thanks as ever for guiding us through this complex and extraordinary case. My pleasure. You can follow events in the trial on theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, Singapore Art Week and Taiwan's elections and a Zanelli Maholi photograph. That's after this week's news bulletin. Brent Sycamore, who founded the Manhattan Gallery, now known as Sycamore Jenkins & Co., was found dead in Rio de Janeiro on Monday. Sycamore was 75. His death was confirmed in a statement from the gallery, which added that it will continue on in his spirit. The case is being investigated as a homicide by police in Rio, according to CNN Brazil, which also reported Sycamore had stab wounds that may have been caused by a weapon such as scissors, a box cutter or a screwdriver. Police say a suspect, who's not been identified, was seen leaving the apartment after staying about 15 minutes. Among the artists represented by Sycamore Jenkins are Jeffrey Gibson, who will represent the US at this year's Venice Biennale, and Cara Walker. The World Monuments Fund, or WMF, the leading independent entity devoted to safeguarding cultural heritage worldwide, has announced a new climate heritage initiative entailing $15 million worth of projects addressing the most profound risks to historic sites across the globe. UNESCO estimates that one in six cultural heritage sites is threatened by the climate emergency. WMF has appointed Meredith Wiggins, an archaeologist and environmental researcher, as its senior director of climate adaptation to oversee the initiative. Wiggins's past work focused on the intersection between natural and built environments. She'll assume her position next month. Pressure is mounting on the Italian government to sack Vittorio Scarbi, a junior culture minister, amid accusations he laundered a stolen 17th century painting. Police seized the work from a property reportedly owned by the 71-year-old, who's both a politician and art critic. The painting depicts the capture of St Peter and is attributed to the Sienese mannerist Rutilio Manetti. It has an estimated value of between 200,000 and 300,000 euros. It was stolen from the 14th century Buriasco Castle near Turin in 2013, according to the Carabinieri's art squad. Scarby claimed in a post on X, formerly Twitter, that he had handed over the work to police so that the necessary verifications could be carried out. He's vowed to defend his name with every possible means. To read these stories and much more, visit the website or the app.
Now, it's the second year of Art SG, the major art fair in Singapore, which takes place amid a much bigger festival, Singapore Art Week. And while the fair has 29% fewer galleries this year, and some galleries reported disappointing sales at last year's event, its organisers are bullish about the fair's significance and optimistic about its future and Singapore's growing importance, with the co-founder of Art SG, Magnus Renfrew, describing the city-state as the only neutral territory left in Asia in its ability to bridge the West and East and its relatively safe position amid rising geopolitical tensions between China and its neighbours. Meanwhile, Singapore Art Week is more ambitious than ever and includes major group exhibitions at museums exploring Asian diasporas in relation to those of Latin America and Africa. Lisa Movius, our Shanghai-based correspondent who covers various countries in the region, joined me from Singapore and I also got her thoughts on last weekend's Taiwanese elections. Lisa, you've just arrived in Singapore. You've just been to the National Gallery for a, an event. Tell us what the mood's like there. It's pretty perky. It's a very big art week this year. So I was talking to someone from the National Arts Council. and They said they have over 150 events happening this week, and that is a all-time record for them. I also spoke with a few artists who were saying that it's a really good energy and that there's a lot going on and a lot to see. So, you know, they're withholding judgment until the fair opens tomorrow and seeing how sales and turnout goes. But overall seeming pretty positive. So Singapore Art Week has been going on for 12 years now, and there's always been an art fair of some kind, but for a couple years, they only had the SEA focus, the they like to call it a platform, not a fair, because it's more curated and it's only galleries doing small booths of only regional artists. Right. So there's a couple of years when there wasn't a big fair and just that happening. So this year that it has SEA focusing, continuing the second year of Art SG, plus you know, most importantly, all of these big events happening from the galleries to the museums to these various pop-up spaces. So a total of 150 things, including their first time doing a big opening night party at the National Gallery of Singapore. You say most importantly, and I think this is something which I'm really interested in, which is to what extent is Art SG viewed as like the kind of crucial event? Uh, because that's the sort of perception from over here, if you like, I'm in London. So to what extent is ArtSG, which obviously has a lot of noise around it, seen as a kind of crucial factor in this art week? Or is it just one event of very many? You know, these big art fairs, we of course have to cover them, but it is a little bit of a uh, shortcoming on our part as Western media to just focus on these big, often Western back events and not so much the local scene. And so these things happen once a year, but there's a whole lot happening much past when the galleries come in and when all the big sales get done, what happens to the local galleries as well as the locally based international galleries before and after the big art fairs, and especially what is happening on the grassroots level. So I think for Singapore, you have to look, and, and I think a lot of cities, you have to look at like there's the big fair on one level, there's going to be, you know, the government organized things on another level. But the third thing, maybe the institutions, but on the fourth, there's the grassroots, there's the galleries, there's the artists. And for Art Week to be a real success, you have to have a lot going on on like the third and the fourth areas of both local institutions, as well as these very grassroots things. You know, this is where it all really happens, not just the sales, but the cultural aspect. That being said, I will just focus on the fair for a little bit longer because because I just did want to explore the fact that this is obviously this is the second year and there is a 29 percent fall in the number of galleries this year. Mm -hmm. And last year there were some reportedly poor sales. So there's a bit of a perception that it isn't going that well. What's the <laughs> official noise coming from the actual organisers? 
I don't think it's fair to say too much before the whole thing is open because we have to give them a chance to surprise us and defy expectations for sure. But there have been a couple of big blue chip Western galleries that dropped off. So that does not augur terribly well. And again, last year, a lot of people said that sales were not terribly exciting. There's a whole buzz around Singapore that collectors are conservative. Uh, you need to bring things that are you know, more pretty, less uh, conceptual for them. But that also kind of, I think, you know, reinforces the worst expectations. And then you have conservative works at a fair and then no one gets that interested because the, everyone's seen this somewhere else. Then, then it, you know, for collectors outside of Singapore, why would they bother to come if it's just going to be things that they've seen five years ago in Hong Kong or Shanghai or London? Okay, that seems really interesting. Tell us about the collector base, because again, we're being told that there's been an influx since COVID of Chinese art world figures to Singapore. Is is that your perception? There's an influx of rich Chinese people. There's not necessarily an influx of art world people. Right. So there's a big difference. There's a lot of rich people, and some of them are already collectors, but most of them are not. And the hope is to turn these people into collectors. But if they weren't collectors in China or in Hong Kong, it doesn't mean they're necessarily mean they're going to start collecting when they're in Singapore, no matter how appealing it might be as a portable asset class. Obviously, that's the art world bubble. But is mm-hmm. Singapore Art Week much more about a much broader base in, in terms of a broad public and the people that live there, but also visitors from overseas? Well, to, to follow up on the art world people, there are quite a lot of art advisors who have moved here because they do have like individual clients that are worth you know, coming to work with. So I think that could turn into something long term. And yesterday, the first of what are supposed to be several mainland Chinese collector museums opened in here in Singapore called the Whale Museum, opened by a Beijing collector called Li Fan, who has a long history of supporting 70s born artists. Right, that's interesting. Tell us more about that. The opening had like a lion dance and all these things that even like my Chinese friends were complaining that it was too Chinese. Oh, right. That's interesting. Because, of course, that's one of the big issues about Singapore's art world at the moment. It's about carving out its own identity, if you like, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Do you think that they're beginning to get that right? I mean, you know, if if the art week is 12 years old, have you seen developments over that time in, in, in terms of how it's stamping its identity? Well, I've been coming, you know, every two years, except for the COVID time during the art week. And at the best of it, it does become a really good platform for bringing all of Southeast Asia together. Because, you know, Southeast Asia is a huge, important, vibrant region with a great art scene, like amazing artists. But the thing is that countries like Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, even Indonesia, don't necessarily have the best platforms for promoting their artists. They tend to be, you know, again, a lot with the grassroots and having really great grassroots scenes. And some artists that are very famous internationally, of course, but actually like bringing them together on a regular basis and putting them together in shows. And instead of having them being one artist in amongst 50 in a big global show, having them getting a real focus doesn't happen so much outside of Singapore. So Singapore has always been really, really important in terms of platforming the rest of Southeast Asia because it is the most developed economy of any Southeast Asian country. And it also is the one that um, those of us in the West are the most you know comfortable and pay attention to. That's interesting. Uh, so that's always been really important but you know it goes up and down i feel like last year there weren't a whole lot of really big southeast asian shows and this year you know there's a solo show for a Yuan who's a really great video artist and a 
you know, I think about eight or 10 years ago, he also had a big solo show at the Singapore Art Museum that uh, was really quite fantastic. And they're, they're doing an update on him. And then these two big group shows, one at NGS and one that's in many venues, mostly uh, Gill and Barracks. One is like Asia and Africa and one is Asia and South America, uh, looking at these sort of broad swatches of interaction in, between the two regions. So I think these kind of big dialogues are something that Singapore really excels at when it does it, but they have to actually like pull out the stops and do it. Yes, absolutely. And those two shows that you mentioned, Tropical and Translations, it seems to me that that's a really interesting contribution to this wider kind of picture, which is all about these kind of global South explorations where you see, as you say, Latin America and Southeast Asia and Afro-Asian dialogues and so on. So there's a kind of mutual investigation in relation to the global south as opposed to sort of exploring asian art through western histories and i think that's a sort of vital thing if again if you're stamping your authority and you're making your art seem distinctive it does seem that that sort of approach and that kind of outlook seems to me to be quite important and i think that singapore at its best is really really good as a site for those kind of dialogues because it is itself a city of immigrants you know there wasn't a whole lot of indigenous population here when it was colonized so it has people from like Malaysia and Indonesia and the rest of Southeast Asia but it also has a huge Indian and ethnic Chinese population all of whom came like during the colonial years and so it has a you know has a really good energy and perspective when it chooses to engage with that aspect of its history and culture So there's an increasing focus then among institutions and art communities on this idea of diasporas, right? I would say it's always been very present in the Singapore art scene because, as mentioned, it's a very much a immigrant city, but it also has a lot of people who emigrate over the, you know, over the whole history of Singapore. But I would say that I've seen it coming up a lot more in shows around Asia, including in like in China and Korea and Taiwan compared to in previous years. It's like it's a two-sided coin. The one thing, it's actually embracing the diversity of like who is Asian and what is Asian culture and using this kind of, because there's so many, especially the Chinese diaspora, but like the, every Asian country and culture and society and ethnicity has huge uh, numbers of diasporas, both recent and sort of many generations in. And they, sort of, they provide a really good like connective or soft tissue between different cultures. So there's a way kind of a natural site of dialogue, but also it's really interesting as a way to reject cultural purity and to sort of say like, well, there's, you know, they can be as Chinese the same way that someone who is native just in a different way. The dark side that worries me about it sometimes is that there is, of course, like globally, there's this ethno-nationalist sentiments rising everywhere. And that's happening in Asia, maybe not as much as in the West, but it's still happening. And so especially in China is trying to say, like monitor and censor Chinese people, both like recent immigrants and like long term, like Chinese Americans, Chinese Brits, trying to control their speech overseas, even, you know, what happens outside of its orbit and make that orbit and that reach more detailed and more involved in a rather ominous way. So, you know, it really boils down to these like curious questions of who is Chinese or who is Korean or, you know, who is Taiwanese or who is Singaporean in both good and bad ways. Yeah. And there's this interesting point that Magnus Renfrew made, which it seems to me might be slightly controversial, where he says that Singapore is the only neutral territory left in Asia. What do you make of that? I was really surprised when I saw that because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Politically, Singapore is not neutral. It's 
mostly a Western ally, though it does try to, you know, play both sides and, you know, stay on everyone's good side. But it is much more engaged with, like, Western politics than most of Southeast Asia. It is not part of the non-aligned movement in the way that, say, Indonesia was and still is. And then when it comes to culture, you know, saying that this is a blank slate sort of place is really kind of a an insult to the rich history and the rich culture that is actually here, although it's not as, you know, well exposed and well promoted as it could be. But I think what he's saying without trying to say it in so many words is that it's a place in Asia that is comfortable for Westerners to go to in the way that Hong Kong was before the political changes. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? Let's talk a bit about Taiwan. I know you've been doing a bit of reporting on Taiwan. Obviously, the elections just happened over the weekend and it appears that it's continuity there and a rejection of Chinese control. Tell us more. Well, all three candidates were rejecting Chinese control. When it comes to the fundamentals, all three were more or less for the status quo. It's just what is the best way to achieve it. So the Kuomintang, the KMT, the Nationalist Party, was more of a reconciliatory, let's do more trade, let's have more engagement. And then the victor, which is the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, which has already been in power for eight years, has what they like to call the porcupine policy of like, you grab us, you'll get hurt as much as we do. Uh-huh. Okay, that's interesting. Both traditionally, the KMT is like foreign to people whose like parents or grandparents came from mainland China in 1949, the Waishang whereas the DPP were more locally born Taiwanese whose family, ethnic Chinese, but whose family have been in Taiwan for, you know, hundreds of years. So the Neishang Ren, but lately, like, it seems like it's been more and more blurred. There's not the same kind of distinction that there used to be. And then this year, there was a really strong third party challenger, the Taiwan People's Party with uh, Ko Wenja. And he like almost got almost the same amount of the vote as the KMT. So, you know, splitting those two parties, if they had been able to have a joint ticket, they probably would have won. But because of just like, you know, no one willing to be the, the vice president versus the president, they were all three of them, you know, both of them on the ticket against the DPP. So. Right. So tell us then about to what extent are the arts in general important in terms of establishing this kind of independent Taiwanese identity that seems so crucial to all of those parties? You know, it feels like the art scene has been kind of marginalized from the main political debates of the time, both in terms of the art world's engagement with politics and vice versa, the political engagement with arts. There's been so much focus on other issues and um, in prioritizing the, the chips industry to the extent that art is rarely even a discussion point. Not even just art, but like culture. So, you know, film and music and so on. The biggest cultural conversation during the election was accusations against the band May Day of lip syncing, whether that was like a politically motivated thing. And then also this disinformation saying that Britney Spears didn't perform in Taiwan because it was too dangerous. And this is not true. This is disinformation. uh, But this is something that one of the candidates was saying. Right. Okay. But I'm aware that there is quite a strong art scene in Taiwan, isn't it? And quite politically engaged, right? It's really strong. And the artists are really interesting. And the institutions are great. From the, you know, Taipei Fine Art Museum, which we all know pretty well, to, of course, the Palace Museum, which is a huge draw and probably, like, tops our visitor lists every year, to smaller but really strong places like the Kaohsiung Fine Art Museum. So there's a really interesting scene there and really strong, but it's very low-key. They don't promote themselves very actively. But definitely there has been, you know, artists showing about, you know, identity and local issues. But often it's a lot of local politics, like the 2019, I think it was, Biennale, which was about local ecological issues, which was super interesting. 
it seems like, okay, yes, arts are not a priority for the government, but continuity in terms of the government therefore seems to be a good thing for the art scene in the sense that there won't be any more interference, even if there isn't greater promotion of the arts, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, Taiwan doesn't have much of any censorship. I think it's probably fair to say there's next to no political censorship, but it's kind of left to its own devices. And there's not a whole lot of dialogue between like the private sector, like the art fairs and the public sector. So most of the museums are uh, state backed. So there's not a whole lot of coordination like what happens in Singapore or Korea or even Hong Kong. So it really takes that kind of coordination to get us to pay attention and have big events and get like the global art world's focus for sure. I think the grassroots itself is doing quite well. There's a lot of good artists working, but again, we don't hear so much from them. Lisa, thank you as ever. My pleasure. ArtSG continues until Sunday. Singapore Art Week goes on until the 28th of January. Visit artweek.sg for more. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, or SF MoMA, has just opened Zanelli Moholy I Me, the first major West Coast museum show of the photographer who describes himself as a visual activist, focusing in particular on black queer identity in their native South Africa. Shana Lopez is one of the curators of the exhibition, and she told me about the work Zava 3, Paris, from 2013. You can see the work on our Instagram and the web story for this episode. Shana, I wanted to begin by talking about Zanelli Maholi's wider practice. Actually, the work we're going to be talking about is in some ways quite unusual, I would say, in their practice. But tell us, uh, you know, you've got this show and, and the practice deals particularly with queer communities. And they're also best known, perhaps, for a series of self-portraits. In a way, this work that we're talking about fuses the two. But tell us about how it sits in this wider practice. So I've chosen a work by Maholi that's from their series Being, which began in 2006 and is an ongoing series. It's also a self-portrait, and I think many people know Maholi's more recent project, Somyama Nongyama, which is a self-portrait series primarily. And the work that I've chosen is called Zava 3, which stands for Zanelle and Valerie, their former partner. And it was made in 2013. It's an intimate portrait, black and white photograph. It's personal, it's tender, and it's a picture of Valerie kissing Zanelli right underneath their ear. It's almost like there's something over the lens and we can only see a small part of, of Maholi and Valerie. So they're letting us into their world. When they were growing up, they did not have positive examples of black queer couples. And Maholi wanted to change that with this series. They wanted to give examples of love, of intimacy. And one of the connecting threads in this series is touch. And so people's limbs are intertwined to a point where you can't tell where one person begins and the next one ends. And it's not just Maholi photographing other people or people outside of their community. It's about Maholi's also picturing themselves. And I want to share a quote that we have at the beginning of the exhibition, because I think it's really critical to understanding Maholi's work. 
They write, I was born in South Africa, I came out in South Africa, and my work is taken from my life. We have to document in the ways we know how. And so in that statement, they're doing a couple things, one of which is talking about how they're photographing what they know. And so it's really important that Maholi is putting themselves in this picture, right? And so while the series being has pictures of couples doing everyday things like attending church, sitting in the kitchen, bathing, they are also including themselves in this work. They've said of the Being series that they wanted to give examples of queer love because they didn't have them when they were growing up. And I think that's a really important thing to establish, isn't it? And also in the context of Maholi describing themselves as a visual activist, it's important that activism can be positive as well as critical, right? Activism has been a part of Maholi's artistic practice since 2002. That's when they attended the market photo workshop with David Goldblatt, a South African photographer. And the workshop was focused on training aspiring photographers who had been marginalized by the apartheid system. And at the same time, in 2002, Maholi founded the Forum for the Empowerment of Women, and it was an organization dedicated to providing access to health care, housing, and education for Black lesbians. So from the beginning, they were thinking about politics and the politics of representation and activism, and they described themselves as a visual activist not exactly an artist, but a visual activist. Uh, photography, even painting and sculpture, becomes a tool to document queer culture for past and future generations. It's interesting, isn't it, too, in the history of self-portraiture and also within Maholi's own self-portraiture, that you have here an example of very informal kind of self-portraiture. There's a sense in which it's almost a snapshot. It is staged because we know that Maholi's essentially pressing the trigger, making sure that the shutter opens, you know. But at the same time, when you do compare them to those more formal, more staged self-portraits, they are very distinctive and very different. And I think it seems to me that it reflects that sort of urge that they have to represent the fullness of their personal experience, but also the experience of their community and the experiences of other people who are experiencing complex sexual identities. Exactly. So when they talk about this series, it's about creating a positive example in the face of all these awful, awful things that are happening in the world, particularly to queer people. And so they're thinking about poverty, violence against women, hate crimes, HIV and AIDS. And so this is 2006 when they began the series. This photograph's from 2013. But they're trying to give their community strength and give themselves strength with these images of queer joy. And I look at them also as an act of defiance because queer visibility, it simultaneously renders Maholi's collaborators vulnerable to anti-queer violence while functioning as an act of defiance, right? There's this, this tension that occurs. Absolutely. Interestingly, Valerie has spoken about her role as a collaborator in this work. And that's something, again, that is really consistent in Maholi's work, isn't it? Yes, and that is absolutely important to Maholi. They do not photograph subjects or models. That's not the language. And words matter, right? Positionality matters to Maholi and words matter. And so the people who are in their photographs are participants, right? They're 
they're actively part of the picture making. They're helping choose the location. They're helping choose the clothing or not clothing or unclothed moments. Um, and so it's a conversation between them. And you can sense this trust in this photograph in particular in Zava 3, but also in their practice as a whole. And one of the things you'll see if you visit the exhibition is this beautiful sense of trust between Maholi, who often stands behind the camera, and their uh, participants and their collaborators, those who are in front of their lens. And the range of people that are in front of their lens can be from people they don't know well to people that they are intimate with, like Valerie. So it seems to me that it's the wealth of human experience that they're trying to describe. It is. They're not just trying to represent themselves and their family. They're looking at it more broadly. And they're really thinking about confronting the politics of representation. It's about capturing these moments of intimacy to provide strength for various Black queer communities in South Africa, not only the one maybe that they're intimately involved with, but a broader range. And if you look at their series, Faces and Phases, which numbers, I think, in the 600s now, it moves well beyond their circle. And they're ongoing series, aren't they? And that's an important thing is it feels like that curious space between documentation and art, if you like. Yeah, I think it's very mixed, especially when you see Maholi in real life, when they're engaging with art, they vibrate with energy. I've actually was so astounded when I met them in person. They visited SF MoMA in 22 and because I had a couple of their works up in a permanent collection exhibition called Constellations, and it was in a gallery about the politics of self-portraiture. Their work was on view and they were in town. And the way in which they engaged with all of the work in that gallery was just amazing and inspiring to be a part of their circle of energy. I've actually never experienced that before. Shana, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Zanelli Maholi, I, Me, is at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art until the 11th of August. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Tim, Lisa, and Shana. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.